There he was, the royal son, hanging on a tree, writhing and surrounded by enemies. And the betrayal had come to this. The rebellion had come to this unexpected turn of events. Absalom, Absalom, King David's son, was hanging from a tree, the the beautiful hair of of the boy tied and and tangled in the low branches of the tree. The mule that he had been riding on had left him suspended there between heaven and earth. Terrible scene. The king's son dying on the beauty of a great oak tree. The family, the, the kingdom drama had come to this place of awful tension. How did this beautiful boy, this royal son, end up dying on a tree? How? Well, family wounds and fractures, human wounds and fault lines, misplaced trust, love of self rather than love for God and love of others. Or in one word, one very unpopular word, sin. Sin. Now today, again, we are exploring the story of King David, and again we see how the life of King David points us to the true king, King Jesus. And again, like last week, we're going to have to walk through some deepening shadows to walk in the light, and so we're going to have to face some family wounds in order to come to some family healing. And we're going to have to excavate some dysfunction in order to get to flourishing. So let's head on into it. Uh, The story of Absalom that we are about to see takes place towards the end of David's reign. Now, David was king for 40 years. Uh, He stepped onto the throne um, at the age of 30. And so he's probably 67 or 68 years old when all this takes place. So register that. David is a 67 or 68-year-old man in the story. Now, there's a lot of text to cover, a lot of story arc to try to piece together, to try to understand. So I think one of the best ways for us to do this is to, again, see it like a play with five acts, okay? So we're going to see it as a five-act play, and here are those acts. One is the assault. Act one is the assault. Act two is the murder. Act three is the absence. Act four is the mutiny, and act five is the tree. The assault, the murder, the absence, the mutiny, and the tree. And and I hope as we go through this, these four acts will help, or five acts will help us to see how all the story hangs together. Now, as our story begins, it's been almost two decades. It's been almost two decades since David heard those piercing words from his pastor, Nathan. You, you are the man. Pastor Nathan came to David and he told a parable. He told a story with a sting in in the tale that called David out for his sin of adultery, of sexual abuse against Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. He called David out as being a guilty man And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it was told that there would be strong consequences for what David had done. Strong consequences for what David had done. 
And so we, we read this in here. Nathan tells him, he says, David, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. There will be violence and disruption and a deformation of things in your house because of what you have done. You have turned aside from my word and you've taken Bathsheba and you've killed your, Uriah. There, there's going to be ramifications, consequences to what has happened. See, David lit a fuse by doing what he did. And I wonder how many days David woke up. How many days he woke up after having a bad dream, wondering how the sword would swing about in, in his house. I, wo- I wonder how many times he saw the ordinary frictions and frustrations of his kids. Uh, you know, those, those toddler bickerings or those teenage arguments. I wonder how many times he, he listened to those and wonder if those were the sharpening of the steel of the sword that would swing in his own home. He knew, he knew it was coming. But when and how? Well, that's the backstory. That leads us to Act 1. That is the previously on version. And now we're going to go to today's episode, and that is Act 1. We'll start with Act 1, the assault. Well, it, it falls apart really quickly here. So um, <clears throat> here we go. In 2 Samuel 13, the terrible time has come and the sword strikes. David's firstborn son is named Amnon. Amnon. David has a son named Amnon with uh, a woman named Ahinoam. But David also has another wife named Makah, and he has a son and a daughter from her. The son's name is Absalom, and the daughter's name is Tamar. So, so Absalom and Tamar are, are brother and sister, and Amnon is, is a stepbrother. He's, he's, he's half-brother. And so um, we need to understand this relationship for what we're about to hear, because Amnon becomes absolutely obsessed. He becomes infatuated with his half-sister's beauty. He becomes obsessed with the beauty of Tamar. And, and he says in the text that he loves her, but he knows, he knows nothing of love because love seeks the good of the other. All he knows is the, seek, the seeking of, the desiring of his own pleasures and his desires. He lusts after her to devour her. Now, through the scheming of some serpent-like counsel of a cousin, uh, Jonadab is, is a cousin and he, he counsels in a very snake-like way. He is a villainous figure in these stories. And he counsels Amnon uh, in a way to get Tamar into his, his clutches. And so um, he has Amnon pretend he's sick. And then King David will see that he's sick. And then he'll ask one of the siblings to go and, and um, comfort him. And so King David asks Tamar to, to go see her her brother, and, and comfort him and bake him some food and be, be there in his presence to, to cheer him up. And in her virtue and in her kindness, Tamar comes to care for a sick sibling. And in a traumatic scene, he seizes her. She pleads and resists and resists and resists and resists. And he violates her. And then he kicks her out of his house. And he locks the door and leaves her crying on the street. It's terrible. It's just terrible. And it's at this point that Absalom arrives, and he knows what's going on. He sees what, what's happening, and he gives her this terrible counsel. He says, Tamar, keep this quiet. Amnon is your, is your brother. Hush this up. Let's bury this thing. This thing needs to be hidden. Now, he does this partly because he's already scheming about what he's going to do 
to Amnon. And so, look, it provides no healing or deep care for the brokenhearted Tamar. It's just grievous. And we read this in 2 Samuel 13, verse 20 through 22. It says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now, so she's going to live in Absalom's house, grieving and set aside, and hate for Amnon starts to to seethe and boil in Absalom's heart. And David, what's David's response? What does it say of David? He's very what? He's very angry. He has an emotional response. But he does nothing. He does nothing. He enters into a conspiracy of terrible silence. He abdicates his role as king, as father. And like Adam in the garden, he does nothing while the snake comes into the garden and bites Eve with his evil. That leaves act one ending with just total grief. It leaves us winded. It's, it's terrible. On to act two, the murder. Things get even darker. Absalom, he's like the slow burning fuse on a bomb. He's a man of, of calculation, patient calculation, cunning and strategy. In two years, he schemes and he waits for two years. And then another slashing of the sword comes to David's family. We read about this in 2 Samuel 13. Pick up at verse 23, and then I'll read 28 and 29. It says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons and so in other words, he's inviting them to a feast. It's a harvest festival. They're, they're going to have a big party and celebrate. Then Absalom commanded his servants, <clears throat> Mark, when you hear Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him and do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous, be valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded And then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and and fled. They fled the murder scene. So Absalom's premeditated murder of his half-brother takes place under the guise of of a harvest feast, under a lie. It's a feast of food and, and joy and celebration. And, and after Amnon has had way too much cab or, or Merlot or whatever it is, when, when, when he's kind of senseless, he's cut down by his brother. And we learn later in the text by uh, the oily serpent cousin Jonadab, um, who helped arrange uh, the, the traumatizing scene with Tamar, uh, that Absalom had planned the scheme from day one. So it's like Absalom is saying, mighty King David, where are you? Where are you when your family needs you? You do nothing. I will do what a king needs to do. I will take care of Amnon. And he does. He strikes down his brother with a sword, and then he flees. 
and he goes into exile. And as is the case all the time in Scripture, exile is to the east. Every time there's a movement east, it's a time of alienation, a time of isolation, right? They, they go east of the Garden of Eden. They're isolated, uh, alienated, and they go into exile. Israel goes into exile in Babylon. It's always an eastward movement. And so he goes east to a place called Geshur. He crosses the Jordan River, goes to a place called Geshur. He's exiled there. And Act 2 now has taken us further into the darkness. Act 3. Look, David has lost two sons. He's lost Amnon to death. And he has lost Absalom to exile. And so there is grief in his heart. He's sad, but yet again, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't go after Absalom. He doesn't chase him down. It's through the scheming of Joab, the commander of his army, that Absalom comes back home. Here's how it works out. Uh, Joab is, is kind of a, a wily character who does all sorts of scheming um, throughout these books. Uh, well, he hires a woman in a small little podunk village called Tekoa to come talk to David and tell him a parable. And it's through this parable that David ends up changing his mind and going after Absalom. Uh, this might sound familiar to you. Remember when Nathan comes to David. Nathan tells a parable and uh, David's heart is, is struck by the story of this parable, and so then he confesses. Well, in this story, this wise woman of Tekoa, she comes and she tells David this story, and by the end of it, um, David is, is ready to go get Absalom out of exile. So there's a parallel in the stories. We're seeing a parallel between dad and, and, and son, uh, these, these different stories. Now, he's brought home. Look at, look at 2 Samuel 14, picking up verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur, and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He brought him back home. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house, and he did not come into the king's presence. Look, he's brought home, but, but he lives apart from David. David remains absent this is functional. This is, this is, not, this is not a restoration of, of a relationship. This homecoming is superficial. David cold shoulders him. The son is, is shunned. Well, now, how's that going to go for Absalom? Is this good for Absalom? Is this good for the course of events? <laughs> no, this is, this is not good. So how's Absalom going to cope with this? How's he going to respond? Well, we see in verses 25 through 28. It says this. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He's a good-looking guy, okay? From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he'd cut it, so it'd grow a lot in a year. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels of the king's weight. It's it's heavy, a lot of hair. There were born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. He names his daughter after his sister. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence, without coming into the king's presence. Our author wants us to know that they are not together. So a couple things in here. No word is wasted. This is all important. Absalom is the most handsome man in Israel, right? This is like GQ cover status, like sexiest man alive. Like pick who it is. Like 
I don't know, Chris Hemsworth and Brad Pitt melded together into one human being. I don't know. Pick, pick the guys, right? This is, this is Absalom. No blemish. He has these long, luscious locks that men and women both covet. He's well known. He has some, some children born, some boys, a girl named Tamar, who is also beautiful. In short, this family has really good genes, right? Really good genes. But here in verse 28, the terrible silence is seen. It's heard. It's felt. So Absalom lived two years, two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. The guy has the good looks. He has a growing public fan base. But he has no relationship, zero relationship with dad. He has a deep father wound. His father is emotionally and relationally absent. He's rejecting his, his son. He, and the son is feeling the slow, cold, painful burn of a dad's disapproval. The son is being rejected. The king won't let him into his presence. Two years. Two years. Now that should trigger something for us. The last time we heard the phrase two years with Absalom, what was happening? He's scheming. And how did that scheming go? What, what was the end result? Yeah. Fratricide, the death of a brother, murder. So how do you think this two years is going to go of, of Absalom's life? Not, not so well. It leads us to Act 4, which amplifies the heartache. Here we go. Act 4, the mutiny. 2 Samuel chapter 15, picking up at verse 1. Here's what it says. <clears throat> After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. He's going to do something about the situation. And he got himself 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, from, from what city are you? And when he would say, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims, they're good and they're right, but, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, oh, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and, and I, I would give him justice. And, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would, he would put out his hand, and he would take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. We see what he's doing here, Right? Do we see what he's doing? He's cunning, isn't he? He's, he's power positioning. He's politicking. This is, this is the beginning of a mutiny, of a, of a coup, of, of an uprising. He gets horses and chariots. He gets a fully loaded, all black, window-tinted escalade, like the, the, the symbol of power. And then he gets 50 men to run in front of it. He has an entourage. So he has his escalade and his entourage, and he's driving through town, and all the people are going, there he goes, there goes Absalom. Like, I put my money on that guy. He's got a bright future ahead of him. And then he, he drives his Escalade with his entourage to the city gate. And what is that? And that's the place where people come together to hear what's happening and, and to talk about what's going on. And in other words, it's the, it's the social media of the day. It's like he drives to the gate there of Twitter or X or whatever it's called or, or Instagram. And, and then he goes and he postures. And he sees people who are going to go come and see the king. And he goes, wait, wait, wait. Where are you from? What, what's, your, what's your issue? 
there's, there's no one in there that's going to listen to you, but man, if, if I were king. And then he puts his hands on their shoulders and he says, oh, I'm so glad you're part of the kingdom of Israel. Like your vote really matters. And then he kisses their baby, right? Like the whole, the whole thing. What is he doing? He's building his brand. He's building his platform. And then in, t- in the text, in verse 6, it says, in verse 6b, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the people. He does this for four years. It's like full election cycle. Interesting, right? Four years. Again, this guy is like a, a slow fuse on a bomb. He, he's, he's Machiavellian. He's dangerous. He's, he is patient, and he's really devious. He does it for four years. And when those four years of wooing and influence accruing are up, he pulls the trigger, or I should say he unsheaths the sword, and the sword strikes the family again. Now, who is the sword aimed at this time? David. David. I I should say this. um, Interestingly enough, Absalom swings the sword at David. Absalom's name in Hebrew, what does it mean? Um, Av, Abba. What is that word? Father. Shalom. What does shalom mean? Father of peace. Absalom's name literally means the father of peace. This is just dripping red with with irony. The father of peace is going to slaughter his dad and steal his throne. And so what does he do? He he organizes this secret coronation of of sorts. He invites 200 of the well-to-do, the the influencers, the the famous people of Israel. He invites these 200 to uh, a religious party, a feast in in a town called Hebron. And he does it in Hebron. Because that's where David was coronated king. So he's going to be like his dad. He's going to one-up his dad. They don't know they're going to this coronation. They just think they're going to a big party. And, and he springs it on them while they're there. And then suddenly the news goes out all across the land. He's now the king. He has the support of these 200 influencers. He, he's the king. So the report goes throughout all of the land. They're tricked into being seen as his subjects. Now, so what, so what do we have here? Well, momentum is growing for Absalom's ascendancy. A civil war is about to break open, and family dysfunction is now about to escalate into national violence. Act three. Act four. Act five. It just gets darker and darker and darker. Look at act five, the tree. So David flees. He, he leaves Jerusalem. Now, why would David leave Jerusalem? He's the king. And he still got an army. Why would he leave Jerusalem? He doesn't want the conflict in Jerusalem. He doesn't want the fighting. He knows it's coming to the city walls. He knows that will kill a ton of innocent civilians. So as a good king, he leaves. He, he flees to avoid the direct conflict and hopefully find a, another way out and through. He flees east. He goes down into the Kidron Valley and he flees east. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Here's what the text says. This is 2 Samuel 15, verse 23, and verse 30 and 31. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. This is David's parade leaving the capital. And the king, David, crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. They're going east. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads. They're mourning, they're weeping. The king has been canceled. And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, 
David, do you know? Have you heard, David? Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So let's, let's explain this. Let's open this up. Again, King David is on the run. King David is on the run. When he was younger, he was on the run from a father figure who had bloodlust in his heart. Who was that father figure? Saul. So King David was on the run as, as a younger man because of a father figure, and he ended up going into the wilderness. And now, again, he's on the run because there's bloodlusting in his son. David has been here before. Now he goes down from the city into the valley Kidron, and then he goes up on the Mount of Olives. Here's an image of it. Um, so there's the city over there to uh, the, that side, to the left or, or the right. Um, and then you can see the dark valley in the middle. And Kidron means valley, dark, the dark valley. So he goes down in there, and then he goes up weeping onto the Mount of Olives. That is his, his movement. And as he heads up onto the Mount of Olives, as he keeps going east, he hears the news, David, Ahithophel, have you heard? He's betrayed you. Who's Ahithophel? He's his right-hand man. He's his counselor. He's his, he's his guy. He's the one who's supposed to be there with him, helping him through this. He's his trusted counselor, and he has betrayed him. He's been betrayed by a friend, and he learns this news as he goes to the Mount of Olives. Now here, um, friends, we're going to have to distill the story even more than I would like for sake of time, but all of this ends up leading to a collision of two armies. This civil war is about to happen. Um, Absalom has an army. David has an army, and they are going to come and collide. And, and as they head into this conflict, David gathers his troops, and he says, listen, like everyone's ears here now. I need every one of you to listen to me right now. Do not, do not harm the young man. Deal gently with Absalom. This is priority number one. Bring him back safe. Safe and alive. Well, how does this go? Well, Absalom, he's got the good looks. He's got an army. He's got weapons. He's got the zeal. But David, how old is he? Remember how old I said? He's got some years of experience behind him. David is a man of, of the military arts. David knows what he's doing. And so the armies clash. And when they do, David splits his army up in, into three to surround, to rout, and to conquer Absalom's army. After this happens, Ahithophel sees the writing on the wall, and he knows he's dead. And so he, he ends up killing himself. He hangs himself. And then we learn what happened at the other tree. The other tree. Look at 2 Samuel 18, 9. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, right? They're being chased away, and Absalom runs into David's army. Absalom was riding on his mule. He's escaping. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom. He's hanging in a tree over there. And Joab said to the man who told him that, what, you saw, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. In other words, I would have given you a raise, a promotion. I would have given you all these things. Why didn't you strike him down? Because th this guy was listening to David. He wasn't going to touch him. But not so with Joab. 
Joab, the guy who was supposed to do what, what the king commanded, does the opposite. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 18, verses 14 through 15. Joab said, get out of my way. I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. There he was, the royal son, hanging in a tree, surrounded by enemies. The betrayal and the rebellion had come to us. David's son, hair tangled and tied in the low branches. The mule had carried on. Terrible scene, the king's son hanging from the beauty of a great oak tree. Help me here. Draw this out. How many javelins were used? Fascinating. We'll come back. Three javelins. At this violence, the mutiny is, is pretty much over. The rebellious son is dead. David will soon hear the news of his victory. Back to the passage we started with, full circle, and then we're going to walk up the slope into the light. I promise you. I promise you. Second Samuel 18. Verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came. The Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? David wants that news. That's what he cares about. How is Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that man. David knew at that moment he was dead. The king was deeply moved. His guts like trembled. That's what those words mean. His, his guts trembled in him. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom. My son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And some of you in this room know the grief of losing a child. And David knew it well. Heartbreak upon heartbreak. Shadowed layer upon shadowed layer. Sin stacked upon sin. Sword strike after sword strike. This is a dark family drama. So what we need to do now is we need to take a step back and we need to take a deep breath and see the big picture and see what is happening before us. The words of Nathan have been fulfilled. They are being fulfilled. The sword will never depart your house. David's sin, the sexual violation of Bathsheba, the cover-up, the murder, brought deformative power into David's house. Like Adam, David had let the serpent into the garden. Is it at all, is it at all any surprise that his son Amnon took what he wanted? It is no secret that dad took what he wanted. He took Bathsheba. Is it at all any surprise that Absalom would kill a brother. It is no secret that David did the same. He killed Uriah, a close friend, one like a brother. See, not only did David take toxic action through these ugly things that God condemns, he later shows a toxic passivity. See, the, the bite of sin has two fangs to it, or it comes in, these, in two different flavors. Commission and omission, the sin of commission and omission. 
The sin of commission and omission. Commission is doing what should not be done. Doing what should not be done. And the sin of omission is not doing what should be done. Not doing what should be done. See, when, when his daughter was abused by his son, David had emotion. He had emotion. He was angered, but he took no action. He virtue signaled. Ah! But he does nothing. Doesn't move towards justice. Now, could this be because he had committed the same crime with Bathsheba? Could this be he didn't know how to address it, as feeling the hypocrite as, as, he, as he was? You know, how does he hold somebody else accountable for what he's done? Have, have we ever not held somebody else accountable for something because we've done that same thing? <laughs> Highly likely. Did guilt and shame keep him from doing what was right? It seems so. And then later when Absalom left, what does David do again? Nothing. He goes passive. He didn't pursue Absalom. And then when Absalom's back, David goes into shun mode. Like he's, he's an absent dad. He withhold his presence and his emotion and his affection. He treats Absalom like he's dead. And I wonder, what would have happened? What would have happened if, if David took a cue from the prodigal father in the story that Jesus told in John chapter 15? You know that story, right? The, the prodigal son, the excessive son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your money. I want to do what I want to do. I want to sleep with who I want to sleep. I want to I spend money on the things I want to spend, and I don't want you in my life. And then off he goes. And things fall apart. And what does he do? He comes crawling back to Dad. And what does Dad do? He goes, two years. Maybe I'll talk to you then. What does Dad do? Dad's guts are churning all this time. Where's my son? And he's standing on the edge of the property line. He's standing on the gate, scanning the horizon. And when he sees his son, he lifts up his garb and he runs and he embraces his son and he puts a ring on him and a robe and, and he has a whole feast. What would have happened if David took the cue from Jesus and did that kind of thing? Do you think Absalom's story would have been different? I do. I think it would have been highly different if we can even make that kind of hypothetical <laughs> claim. So, here in our story, what we see is a father who has deeply wounded his family, who's acted tragically and exasperated with passivity, and now there's a civil war and a high death rate. And in the story, this, this father is now wounded himself. It comes back to bite him. And here's, here's what I need to say to, to the fathers, to the fathers in, the, in this room. How great is your responsibility? How great is your calling? And how great is your joy to bless your family, to steward them well, to model self-sacrifice and faithfulness, to model compassionate gentleness to open up your your emotions and and share yourself with your children even when it's it's hard how formative are our faithful acts of righteousness and how deformative are our acts of sin both commission and omission the unleashed forces of deformation and family lines 
See, the home, the home is the primary place for spiritual formation and deformation. The home is the, is, is the primary place for spiritual formation and deformation. And what we do in private works its way out into the rest of our family and beyond. What happened in David's bedchamber sprawls and spirals and eventuates into a, sil- a civil war. It's, it's foolishness not to think the secrets of the heart won't shape the home. The secrets of the heart will shape the home. So there's a warning in here. There's a warning in here to all of us parents that we are charged with the great task of following Jesus. The primary place where souls are formed or misshapen is is in the home. Now, there's such good news. There's such good news. The good news is that we're not trapped in this dysfunction. We don't have to be tangled in these kind of family trees forever. See, your, your family tree is not your destiny. Which for some of us in here we go, Thank you, Jesus. Your family tree is not your destiny because you are grafted into a new family tree. You're grafted into the family tree of Jesus. And so the good news is all this points us to Jesus. We need to see how it points us to Jesus. Because this family of of royal dysfunction, the story of this royal family dysfunction, is the human story, right? It's the human story. Humanity has betrayed God. Humanity has hid from God and each other. And then we start cutting each other down, swinging swords from Cain and Abel to, to the rockets and rifles in today's news. But this is also a story of how God comes to those who have betrayed him. See, King David is betrayed by his son, right? David leaves Jerusalem, the city, weeping, going east, grieving, and grieving the betrayal on the Mount of Olives. A thousand years after this, another king leaves Jerusalem, goes down into the Kidron Valley and weeps on the Mount of Olives. And who is this king? Jesus, the night before he's crucified, goes down into that valley of darkness, rises up and goes to the Mount of Olives, to a place called Gethsemane. And there he weeps. There he finds out he's betrayed. And and see, the parallels go even deeper. Who betrays David? Well, Absalom's son and Ahithophel, a friend. What happens to Ahithophel? Well, he hangs himself. What happens to Absalom? The son dies hanging in a tree. Who betrays Jesus? What happens to Judas? The parallels run deep. This points us to the work of our Savior who follows this pattern, the weeping king who goes down into darkness to then come up and rise again. And this, all this again, see, it points us to Jesus. Jesus takes upon himself the sin of David, the sin of all of us. And like Absalom, it's like a composite image, and like Absalom who rides a mule to the place of his death, Jesus, the royal son, rides on a mule into the city, and there he is hung, suspended between heaven and earth, this glorious, beautiful son without blemish, a perfect sacrifice hangs in our place. How many javelins for Absalom? Like Absalom, Jesus is pierced, pinned three times, suspended between heaven and earth. And all this, friends, this leads us to see that Jesus and the Father weep over the Son like David did. 
Look at the Father's heart, and, and we'll close with this. The Father's heart, it's found in verse 33. The king was deeply moved in his guts and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son? That is the heart of a loving parent. David shows us here the the heart of the true father. The father's heart. Though he was betrayed, he still had compassion on, on his child. God's fatherly heart is one of compassion. Costly sacrifice. Though we committed cosmic mutiny, he comes to us. He runs to us. And the son dies in our place. Though we have committed sins of commission and sins of omission, though we have sinned like Absalom and David, the Savior steps into our place and takes our judgment. And the father doesn't go passive. He enters in. He does something about it. He chases after his wayward children. Jesus, the Son of God, was the one who came to do what David said he wanted to do here. He did what David couldn't do. Jesus comes to reveal the heart of a father. And this next week is Thanksgiving, right? Okay, we're on the same calendar. Thanksgiving, which is a time where we should gather together as family and celebrate, and it should be full of joy and laughter and tryptophan and all of these things, right? But if your family is like a lot of the families I know, there's some dark spots that, that rise, that light shines on when everyone's back together. And father wounds and father woundings seem to enter into the mix again. Maybe you forgot about them for a while, but they rise to the surface. Friends, know this. Your family of origin, your gnarled family tree with its, its dark spots of, of wood rot, it's not your destiny. It's not your destiny. And so take heart. If you have father wounds, whether you're a son or a daughter, if you have father wounds, If the deformative power of sin has bent and twisted your family in ways that has marked you and scarred you, please know there's healing in Jesus. There is healing in Jesus. Also, take heart. If you have wounded your family, and I know I have, if you have wounded your family through sins of commission or sins of omission, there's healing in Jesus. There's a whole new trajectory, a whole new way to shape a family tree because you are grafted into his. There's great hope. So friends, this heartbreaking story of father wounds and a father's wound, the sad story of David, the sad story of of Absalom, it's our story. It's a story of humanity and it's a story of a good father's heart, of his love for his people. In Jesus we see the for us reaching, ever seeking, compassion giving, sacrificial love of the Father's heart. In Jesus, we see the for us reaching, ever seeking, compassion giving, sacrificial love of the Father's heart. So let us 
celebrate the good news. We don't stay in Kidron and we don't stay weeping on the Mount of Olives. Jesus rises from the grave and grafts us into a new family. And we are refathered by our Heavenly Father who loves us perfectly with an open heart and open arms in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the for us reaching, ever seeking, compassion giving, sacrificial love of a good and gracious Father. And He loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the reconciliation and the restoration that happens through you and the stories in this room right now of restoration and reconciliation and family trees being remade new and, and grieving parental hearts being healed because there's hope of resurrection. So Lord, we love you. We thank you. May we see the beauty of Jesus through all the shadows that we walk today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.